The promise of laboratory medicine 2.0 is large, but will we finally be able to move away from a volume-based system of testing towards one that is value-based? Will we definitively be able to show improved patient outcomes and an increased level of overall health managing patients with laboratory methods? And will we be able to move away from a system historically rooted in sick care more towards one rooted in wellness care? Our guest today is Dr. Clifford Morris from Physicians Lab. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Dr. Clifford Morris is the Director of Research and Development for Physicians Lab, where he is responsible for developing new clinically actionable testing panels. Clifford, welcome to the podcast. Uh, Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Your lab focuses largely on metabolomics. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what is metabolomics and the promise that it holds? Metabolomics is a relatively new area of study. In about 2005, it really started gaining a lot of attention, and now it's grown massively. In definition, metabolomics is really the study of biological metabolites. All these small circulating molecules that are in your body, amino acids, organic acids, carbohydrates, anything that's involved in the metabolism of your system. Studying metabolomics and quantifying them and then turning that into information that you can learn from, especially if it can provide you hints of what's to come and hints of current health. That's truly what the power of metabolomics is. Health should be our biological norm. Uh, Yet these days, chronic disease causes about 88% of worldwide uh, deaths. So there's a major call to action to deal with this. Metabolomics, we really see as the apogee of all the omics. It allows you to achieve a cross-sectional area of information that you really wouldn't be able to achieve independently. As great as genomics are, it gives you a baseline. It gives you a blueprint, whereas metabolomics gives you a direct functional readout of exactly what's happening in the body. And not only that, there's a lot of research on the major metabolic killers, diabetes, kidney disease, heart disease, and they actually reveal critical signs of systemic dysfunction at the molecular level years before clinical symptoms appear. So now that we have laboratories that can offer metabolomics and metabolomic strategies, we need a system and a healthcare system that can adopt these new strategies and allow doctors to really use them to their best advantage. So what do you foresee this new system looking like? How's it going to be different? Is it going to involve more frequent testing, testing at home, less invasive testing with things like swabs, saliva, and urine rather than blood? Yes, absolutely. The the big drive now is testing at home. That's how you really improve patient adherence. You have to make the test easy. Even though people are really into their health, health is probably the number one factor in most people's lives. They need something that's convenient and easy and non-invasive. Those are really the big three that you want to hit. Most people don't want a needle going in them. They don't want to have to go to an awkward draw center and wait for an hour or two, give their blood, have to send the samples in or anything like that. So we're seeing a lot of effort and a lot of capital being spent at at home uh, collection devices, such as micro sampling devices, labs on chips. There's a big push in having something that you can plug into your mobile device, and that does all the computing and uh, capturing power for you displacing that onto the user so they collect at home and send you the data that's really where we're seeing everything uh, move into in the future how can we still get clinically reliable information from a much easier way than the old traditional methods 
which tend to be invasive, cumbersome, and awkward to um, collect. It seems like we've been somewhat slow in healthcare to adopt technologies which have become prominent in other areas of our life. So I think this will be a, a great step forward, or at least bring us into the 20th century. I think there's another challenge is historically, the healthcare system in the U.S. has been based on sick care. You might even say it's somewhat illegal to pay for wellness care because Medicare, the, the largest payer in the U.S., is bound by law to only pay for procedures that are necessary and sufficient to diagnose and treat disease. And many, if not most payers in the U.S. take their cues, of course, from Medicare. Now, are we going to be able to transition to or expand uh, a system of wellness care and optimizing health? The answer, and I say this with a lot of hope, is yes. I just estimate it's going to take a long time, maybe a decade, 15 years to really revolutionize the system. The problem is you have a system that has been around for a long time, 40, 50, 60 years, and it's very hard to not only remove and replace those systems, but replace them with something progressive and different. The biggest problem is transitioning the practitioner base. Most practitioners have something that works well for them and they're scared to change that. Um, it's their life, it's their family's life. There's a lot of ramifications for changing something that they you know, already have established and works for them. But now that new technologies are coming out and new science is coming out, they're not able to be adopted fast enough. I kind of like to make the comparison, you know, carpenters, they have all the, the right saws, power tools, they have everything to do so that they can make the best furniture possible. A baker has all the right things to make the best looking cake so people will eat it. Doctors, hospitals and health systems, they, there's an incredible amount of new tools clinical decision support that is out there, even financial support, but physicians and hospitals don't use it. And why? Well, the research has hinted because there's no incentive to do so. So that's why until we put on pressures to make a value-based reimbursement scheme work that involves two-sided risk, we're really not going to see adoption of these new technologies and science until there is pressure to um, focus them on uh, really producing the best outcomes with the lowest cost. Um, I don't think it's going to be adopted at least fast enough. And the years are critical for some people. Uh, there's a lot of patients out there that are missing out on uh, healthcare or technology that could be saving their lives. Uh, some people only have one year, two years or three years life left. So getting those uh, adopted fast is a really big deal. That is a big deal. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what you meant by two-sided risk? And every time you deal with a scheme like this and you're adopting new technology, the risk has to be on both sides. And the risk has to be for the adopter and the people pushing it. You have to have some sort of collaborative effort. So whoever's enhancing or offering this new technology, they have to take some of the risk too the payer has to take some of the risk so that the person who's adopting it, the practitioner on the, out, uh, on the end side, um, isn't experiencing the risk. They're experiencing a validated product that is backed up and guaranteed. And that's really where it also comes um, into play. A lot of these new technologies, they might not be validated or they haven't been long, around long enough to compete with a historical system. You know, the historical system is well established. It has um, a lot of backing behind it, a lot of financial backing and even, you know, government involvement. So until that risk is, uh, you know, kind of kind of spread across the board, it's going to be even more difficult to um, 
adopt. Now, one area where this new approach to testing is gaining some traction seems to be in the area of testing for hormone replacement therapy, which seems to be kind of a nebulous area somewhere in between sick care and, and well care. Can you tell us a little bit about this? And is this currently being reimbursed by payers? The way, way you describe it being a nebulous area, I think that's exactly correct. The science is, is very well-founded, the general medical community still hasn't adopted the fact that hormones are extremely critical to our well-being. Bioidentical hormone replacement therapy was a big gain in this area. There used to be a lot of use of synthetic hormones, and we all know those have a lot of side effects and a lot of risks. And I think that's where a lot of the bad name came from. But now that they use you know, semi-natural or uh, naturally derived bioidentical hormones, the therapy has an incredibly high percentage of patients uh, with very positive outcomes, including improved energy, wellness and balance, mental clarity. And then the big player here is that it can prevent certain diseases. It gives you protection in the long run, some aging advancements and uh, benefits. And ultimately, the answer is yes, a lot of it can be covered by insurance. And this is really comes down to, you know, when your hormone levels are low enough or aberrant enough, you're at risk and you're going to experience negative health effects. So if a practitioner can deem it medically necessary and the test can confirm that, a lot of the time we do see it being covered by insurance. That's an interesting area because the insurance is starting to realize, okay, in the right conditions under the right care, hormone therapy can be an advantage. It can be considered preventative health care. And now this is teetering closer to the wellness system and the well care system. We're looking at a value-based system here. So we're identifying a potential risk. We're doing something about it in terms to mitigate future risk and thereby enhancing the patient, patient's life as well as less financial burden in the future so that should be a win. Hormone replacement therapy is generally going to be for older patients or patients transitioning into the later stage of life. As you suggested, the elderly are certainly at higher risk of certain diseases. Hormone replacement therapy in many ways could be considered preventative. Uh, now, is aging itself ultimately going to be considered disease, do you think? I think so. This is a very interesting topic to me, and specifically, there is a big trial underway at the moment. It's called the TAME study. That's targeting aging with metformin. Research showed that people taking metformin, whether they had diabetes or not, which is what it's indicated for, got a lot less cancer than people who didn't take it. And the results are like 20, 30% reduction in uh, preliminary data. The outcome of the study showed that when people are taking metformin, they were exceeding the life expectations a lot more than the researchers expected. So now they presented this as um, a full study. They're going through actual clinical trials, but they're addressing the use of metformin with aging. So if this trial is successful and it goes through, which it looks like it will, the FDA will allow finally, you know, specific drugs being used to target aging. And at that point, aging will officially be recognized as a disease. So I think it's going to be very interesting to watch how this study um, progresses, to see the outcome of it. And as more and more people recognize that the differences in how people age could be considered a disease, because what is disease? it's being away from the norm. If you're aging differently to the population, well, you're away from the norm and you could consider that disease. 
Now, it seems like we're going to be able to provide a tremendous amount of value in the lab industry. Do you think we're going to be able to capture much of this value? Are we going to be able to move away from a commodity, high-volume-based model of lab services to a more value-based model? We hope so. I don't think the system will ever be fully replaced. Commodity-based systems will still always be there for some of your high-volume, high-throughput uh, kind of testing, very basic testing, maybe, you know, clinical testing that's done on routine blood panels. However, moving forward, we're really going to have to see a value shift. There's a very interesting group, and they call themselves the Santa Fe Project. And they coined the phrase, um, adopting the version 2.0 laboratory shift. And they basically are looking at how we can move from a commodity volume-based model that really is broken and failing, developing laboratory testing and outcomes that are value-based, looking at things that are clinically actionable. So many lab test results are just done and nothing gets done about them. They get reported on a sheet of paper, they get explained to the patient, and that's it. There's no actual outcome or they don't contribute to decreasing the care gap any faster or they don't offer you any new or novel information to make a more effective therapeutic strategy. So replacing that redundant uh, standard style of testing into more testing that is clinically actionable will be a way to capture that value. Really the way to capture it or what will be tangible is decreasing that care gap. Because if you have people that are healthier faster, they're spending less money on being sick, they're getting back to work faster, they're being better family members and better societal members. That is really the value that you're capturing here. But I think there's huge potential to create these new lab products. It takes a very high level of evidence and large amounts of money to carry out studies to develop and validate products the right way. Where's this money going to come from? How are we going to carry out the, the necessary studies to get wide-scale adoption of this approach? It's going to have to be a combination of private and public money. We can't expect all of the private organizations to come together and do this privately. And we can't expect the government to do it all. Not in America. In some other countries it might work well, but not here. And so the main point here is we have to produce valid science and effective medicine because it will prove itself. I like to make another comparison here to NASA. They went through the space shuttle era there was pretty much unlimited funding. The government started to have a hard time justifying why they were spending billions of dollars launching rockets. So NASA kind of took a, a kind of a hit with their public funding from the government. So they shifted. They became an organization that now says, okay, we're developing space technology. Yes, we're interested in visiting other planets and doing all of our stuff. However, we're gonna show you exactly how the technology that we're working on impacts your life. So now they're using, you know, studies from the International Space Station to show how we can better enhance food and crop production. They're showing, they're doing research up there on cells, stem cells, all sorts of interesting stuff that can't be done on Earth, but they have to translate it to how the public will gain. So just in the same sense as NASA did that, this whole integrative and wellness and functional medicine movement that needs to happen is going to take a combination of funding from public and private. And to attain that funding, we have to show immediate impact on the general population. So we have to show that, okay, a new product came out a new testing strategy came out. This is valid science. So ultimately, you know, providing solid research that provides an immediate product that the public can benefit from um, is going to be the right way to get the right funding. That's an interesting point about NASA. 
I think many people wouldn't appreciate the marketing component to something like NASA. And you mentioned snake oil and things like that. So I think the main challenge or one of the main challenges to moving uh, to a new model of lab testing is paying for wellness care instead of sick care. But then, as you suggested, there's an educational component and a marketing component, if you will. I know some people don't like the word marketing, but how can we refocus attentions to this new approach towards wellness testing? That's that's a huge di- issue that a lot of um, industries are dealing with right now. Um, one in particular is CBD and cannabis. Um, it's just so rife with ineffective products, things that don't work. And so people start saying, okay, if I'm suspicious about, you know, one component of that, I'm just going to be suspicious about the entire thing until it is completely validated and completely confirmed. And so that's really where you have to um, separate yourself from the rest um, is educating the public on these new technologies or new sciences or new medicine that comes out. You know, the only thing worse than no information is misinformation. And that's what we're kind of battling here with, because there's some companies or there's some labs that don't care if it's misinformation. They're concerned about a short term gain. They're concerned about riding a wave, getting a product out there, capitalizing on it, on it. And in five years, there'll be something new. You know, science is like fashion, except longer seasons. Something new comes out, there's a lot of naysay, there's a lot of, you know, ooh and ah, and I don't know about it. And then people accept it. And then it becomes widespread, becomes generic, and then it no longer becomes important and people move on. So some people are fine with just, you know, trying to take advantage of the boom and moving on to the next thing as soon as the next kind of fashionable item comes back. So to remove these stigmas associated with new and unknown science, we really have to encourage plentiful research to, to make sure that these products stand out and that they are effective. And so people can see how important it is to have pre-validated products that, that, that have due diligence occur to them. Given the reimbursement and economic climate in the United States, do you foresee much of this work coming from outside of the United States? 100%. It's about who is there and who is willing to take it on and accept it. So we see a really nice growth in the emerging markets. These are developing countries that are playing a massive role in this. China, India, and the Middle Eastern countries, there's really a record number of people coming out of poverty, and they want to experience all these benefits of the first world systems. You know, the Middle East especially has huge hunger for anything new and innovative. They're actually very progressive in a lot of ways, and they're not bound by a historical system that is so fundamentally in place that it's almost immovable. So they have a great, you know, kind of gap for these new systems to be adopted. I mean, we look at places like Thailand and China, where leisure healthcare, where people travel and go and spend two weeks in Thailand, get all their healthcare needs addressed, they come back and they do it for half the cost that it is done in the US. So these societies that can really adopt these new strategies, they're going to make the biggest impact. They're going to be an incredibly important source of funding. Whether it's coming into the U.S., going out, I think the benefit will still be there. Mayo Clinic just opened up in uh, Dubai. So we're getting a, a lot of international borders are dissolving, and these are becoming global projects that are really being worked on. So I'm really excited to see what kind of intercontinental collaboration is going to continue to occur. And it has to. You want as many people 
on your team as possible. Can't have enough smart people and you can't have enough money into projects. It seemed like there was a period of stagnation in lab medicine in the 80s and 90s. It seemed like clinicians knew pretty much all there was to know about managing their managing their patients from a laboratory perspective using simple chemistries, metabolic panels, and other routine tests. But now there seems so much more potential to effectively manage patients and optimize health through laboratory methods. Have we finally reached the point where the uh, doctors taking care of these patients really can't have everything in their heads and they don't know everything there is to know about lab tests and they could really benefit from consultation with lab professionals in the management of their patients? I feel sorry for these doctors sometimes. It's like drinking drinking out of a fire hose. As much as we love this this exponential growth we're seeing in science and technology being translated into medicine, it's hard for them. It's it's a lot of new information. How do they know that it's true? How should they know if it works? And, and that's where education comes in. With the advent of all the new technologies and laboratories, we're really plateauing on the analytical front. We have mass spectrometry in laboratories detecting, you know, one atom. Uh, it's really the analytical side is maxed out. Now the biggest failure of laboratories is not the testing itself, but it's on the pre and the post analytical side. On the pre analytical side, labs have not done enough to educate practitioners on what's the most up-to-date test, what different types of tests can give you different information about the same thing, give you a slightly different slant, you know, look at a different angle, and when to order the test or how to order the test. Laboratories have a huge burden of misordered tests. Doctor orders a test maybe just because it's part of standard protocol. Does the patient really need it? Sometimes not. It's another test that is sitting in the queue, another test to be you know, reviewed, and really ultimately you get no clinical actionable outcome out of it. So we have to really do a better job on educating practitioners on what tests are out there and how to order them and why. And then on the post-analytical side, equally, we haven't done a good enough job on teaching the practitioners how to really interpret them and fundamentally understand the lab report. We give them five pages, there's a bunch of graphs, a whole bunch of numbers, reference ranges. We just say, okay, it's your job. You're the doctor, you're the one in front of the patient, have fun. It has to be a lot more collaborative than that. We have to show the practitioners, okay, this is what this actually means and turn it into not just a direct test but a functional test so instead of just looking at one number on a page how can we correlate multiple different analytes and give you a more of a functional readout and give you an assessment that actually looks at the patient on a holistic level and allows you to adjust treatment or offer things that are clinically actionable that will give you positive outcomes in the long run. You mentioned we've kind of plateaued in terms of the analytical component of testing. One of our previous guests on the podcast said, it's no longer a mechanical world of testing, it's an information world. A lot of the talk in, in healthcare is of AI and how we're gonna analyze this information, what we can draw from it and how we can present it to doctors and patients. Do you see a role for AI in the lab testing space? Without a doubt, it's already there. It already is a big player. Some labs don't adopt it. That's okay. They won't be around much longer. I really like what you mentioned earlier. It's now really um, an information game. It's how you can use that information. You know, you have data, you have information, then you have analysis, and then you have learning. So we're really stuck in that kind of analysis and learning phase. Our lab in particular is doing a lot with AI. 
Uh, it has a very special power in resolving large amounts of analytical data, which is exactly what we do. We do LCMS or we do genetics and we look at thousands of different subsets of components and we have to present that in a truncated visualizable manner. And so it would almost be impossible without AI. We need algorithms can look at, you know, the sets of data. It needs to be able to tell us, you know, what fits in our expected norms and what fits out. And then if it doesn't fit in, why? Why is that flag, quote unquote, appearing? Why does it not fit in with the norm? Is that because it's actually, you know, something wrong with the patient? Or is it more of a data anomaly? Metabolomics is, is a perfect candidate for AI. We're really using it to identify clinical correlations and doing you know, system-wide analyses. So when you look at the body, it's a bunch of you know, very complex systems. So why would we do reporting or why would we look at testing that only identifies you know, one or two things as part of a system that might be effective in acute determination of something, but when you're trying to understand a very complex issue dealing with complex systems, you have to combine the data in a systems-wide approach. Um, and when you do that, the outcome is way exponentially improved. You can start to see predictive technologies taking a role, telling us when markers start moving in the body that you can expect certain things to happen downline. Or even what I really like is things like dosing calculators or the ability to show if people adjust their lifestyle, how their age will change, you know, their biological age, or how certain systems can track or give you trajectories of how the future will be. Basing it on thousands and thousands of patients, you can say, okay, if you start taking supplement X at 100 milligrams, we expect to see these other cascades of levels or other factors in your life change by this specific percent. So having specifics and quantifying it is really the whole point of using AI. Not to get general trends and get you know big kind of big data technologies, we're looking at more specific interactions that can tell us very important information that is actionable. The biggest thing is labs don't even know it, but they're sitting on data like gold ore. All these hard drives are just sitting there and they're packed with information. But AI is the tool that you need to extract it and make it tangible and make it into precious gold. And that precious gold is something that's outcome-based and value-based. And I'm really, it's a privilege to work and live in an era where we can take advantage of such an incredible tool. I thought mass spectrometry was incredible and genomics was incredible, but put them together and you will really see that we have something uh, hugely important. This does sound like it's going to be a massive step forward, and I'm looking forward to it as well. Clifford Morris, how can people find out more about you, the future of laboratory medicine, metabolomics, and Physicians Lab? Absolutely. You can uh, visit our website. That's physicianslab.com. Or you can find me on LinkedIn, Clifford Morris. Very interested in uh, having conversations with other like-minded people. Or if you don't like what we say, let's talk about it. Early adoption has its own set of risks, but if you're somebody who's progressive and, and do believe in the way this is going, um, would love to talk more about it and, and see where the future can go. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a pleasure being here. Our guest has been Dr. Clifford Morris of Physicians Lab. We'll see you next time on the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. Thank you.